Speaking of racism, stereotypes exist for a reason. We often accept them as also having a ring of truth to them. But what has our acceptance of stereotypes led to? And do we really know the history behind them? On today's episode, we are going to dig into the history behind some very commonly held stereotypes, both positive and negative. I'm joined today by Calvin Moore from the show Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. Not only does he host a wildly popular podcast, he is a historian of African American history and runs a travel company here in Detroit, Michigan. Enjoy. You're listening to Speaking of Racism, the podcast dedicated to frank, honest, and respectful discussions about race and racism in the U.S. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Pull up a chair and let's talk. Special thanks to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know featuring Jay Lang. So, Calvin, tell me a little about yourself and what you do and, and your story here. Well, um, I run a tour company, you know, historian by trade, so it's, it's kind of cool that I get to do that, uh, of the city of Detroit. Mm. And so I uh, focus on the history of the city because we're a very, very old city. Uh, focus on present developments because there's a lot going on in Detroit that people don't know about uh, and focus on different challenges. It's, and what is the tour company? It's called 7.2 Tours. Okay. Most of what we do are private tours for large companies. Team building, private one-on-one tours as part of the hiring process, wow. uh, internship tours, things like that. Selling the city to people who might want to accept offers of employment here. And they are often interviewing in cities like L.A., Chicago, and New York, and then also Detroit. Wow. Um, and so just trying to help them understand what's going on here, mm-hmm. uh, really, because people will look and they're like, okay, well, the job offer is there, the option is there, but it's Detroit, but they're offering a, a lot of money, so I should probably at least go on the interview before I say thanks, but no thanks. And then they come and they go on a tour and they're like, well, hold on. Hold on a second. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's what we do, and I get to use my degree every single day. Uh, so I went to college for history. Uh, I was raised in a home where I was surrounded by history. My mother forced me to to watch historical documentaries and uh, miniseries. She's a family historian, so she's got crates and crates and crates of uh, all sorts of census data over the years. And as a kid, I didn't really care. She, she'd come into the room. She'd be like, oh, my gosh, I found your great, 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 great grandfather, and here's his name in the census, but his name was this, and it got changed. And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> I'm watching Transformers, Mom. <laughs> now move out of the way. I don't know if Optimus Prime's going to survive this one. Um, but no, I, you know, I was always uh, being influenced by history. I think all of us are influenced by history, but I was actually influenced by, you know, the study of it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when I got to college, uh, I went to college for ministry. Interestingly enough, and my mom was like. Mm, I don't see you being a minister. She was right in the, in the long haul. Uh, but uh, she's like, why don't you get something else to fall back on? And I picked uh, the other degree that you can't really fall back on, <laughs> which is history, right? Um, you know, I could have gone on to be a lawyer, which I didn't do. Uh, but I just always just kind of had this love for it, mm-hmm. you know, discovering why, you know, why do people act this way? And then also I studied the, I studied the Bible growing up and I'm like, man, I, yeah, I read it cover to cover a bunch of times. I'm going, man, the people, you don't have to believe, uh, and I don't, but you don't have to believe all the miracles, you don't have, you don't have to believe that God exists, and it, but this is still a people's story, and they believed that 
that mm-hmm. these things – I mean, the historical events happened. Right. But they believed that God acted on their behalf in the historical events. Um, but here I am uh, reading about this and I thought having a history degree would be able to inform my my religious understandings as well because these are real people in real space in real yeah, time. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I wanted to understand that. And then I also wanted to understand a little bit – honestly, um, I grew up in the military – and so I was around a diverse group of people, yeah. but still predominantly white. And mm-hmm. uh, went to very, very good schools, surrounded by white people. Moved to Michigan after my dad got out of the military uh, into Gross Point Woods. We were the second African American family ever to move into Gross Point Woods, and that was in 1994 that wow. we moved in. And so uh, there, there was that. Uh, so I was always constantly surrounded by by white people mm-hmm. and in a way the only access i had to quote unquote my people right the only mm-hmm. the only uh, access i had to my black identity was via the movies i hated my mom making me watch mm-hmm. and her bursting into the room and telling me that she'd found my great 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 grandfather whose name had changed right that, that's yeah. that's the extent of it right mm-hmm. And so I constantly got things that were said to me, like, oh, Calvin, you're the, you're the whitest black guy I've ever known, right? Um, which at the time, you know, I just laugh it off. Oh, that's so funny. And I was in very conservative circles and I was that safe black kid. I was, mm. I was the proof at a church that racial reconciliation was happening. Ooh. Uh, I, I listened to your episode about racial reconciliation. Um, I think someone said they prefer the term racial conciliation because, right? And I, I loved that. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we, we had to have been on good terms to be, to, Amen. to be ordered to be reconciled to right. one another. But I was, I was the proof. Hey, you know, we are racially reconciled. Look. It's Calvin, right? <laughs> He's over there. Shuck and jive, Calvin. Shuck and jive. Right. All right. And I didn't mind playing that role growing up, but I always just kind of felt like, man, I don't I don't really know who I am and where I come from. My idea of black people were the exact same idea of black people that a lot of white people have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Office Space, mm-hmm. uh, beginning of the movie. I can't remember the guy's name, but he's he's listening to hardcore rap in his car and he pulls up again you know, next to black people and then he locks his door. That would have been me. That would have been me, right? Um, like I almost saw myself as as not physically white, but psychologically. Yeah, psychologically, sure. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't want to lose the the privilege that I had, and Ooh, yeah. um, I like being one of the good guys. I like being one of the good guys. And then uh, through several episodes uh, that let me know that I, in, in no uncertain terms, uh, was still just a nigger. My eyes started to open to no matter what I do, no matter what accomplishments I make, no matter how learned I am, no matter how many degrees I have under my belt, uh, I am going to be seen as just another nigger to some. Mm-hmm. And I will be a black something or other. Right. Right. I will be a black success story. I will be a black business owner. I will be a you know black professor. You know, th- these mm-hmm. kinds of things. Black historian. Right. right? Uh, and so I committed myself to, OK, if, if I want to know where I came from, I should probably study history. I'm already mm-hmm. geared towards it. And that's what really, honestly, to this day, I can still say it is the thing that made me more aware of what it means to be black in this country yeah. from the beginning of the nation up to including the Civil War as my background. But I know a lot beyond that as well. And the past informs the present. Right. And so I understand how we got here. Uh, there's a reason why the Saturday Night Live sketch with Dave Chappelle, I think it was like the night after Trump won the election. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and uh, Dave Chappelle plays a character where he's at like a white person's house watching, you know, Hillary lose and the white people are freaking out and Dave Chappelle is not at all surprised. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the kind of thing like because of my understanding of history, I was not I was disappointed, yeah. but I was not surprised. Mm-hmm. That that happened at all, uh, and I can look at the historical precedents that were leading up to. Okay, hey, this this is probably what's going to happen. Uh, I'm not going to be surprised, but I need to gear up for the next four to eight years, more than likely eight years, as much as I hate to say that. Um, but that, I mean that that's my that's my background. You can you kind of saw my political leanings in in that uh, as well. But I'm also open to having my my ideas challenged, mm-hmm. the wheels of my beliefs kicked, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, I run my own show called Leading Questions with Calvin Moore, and it's on the Podcast Detroit Network, and you can find it on any uh, podcast platform, uh, Google Play, SoundCloud, uh, iTunes, all that stuff. Uh, and we have roundtable discussions, and we sit people across a table from each other to talk about stuff that they disagree about. So we've talked about everything from uh, immigration to uh, reform, to sexuality, to uh, we did a four-week series on uh, religion. We did a three-week series on identity politics, why I'm conservative, why I'm liberal. Um, we are doing a series right now at the time of this recording called uh, The Role of the State, and we're looking at the role of the state in education and the economy and religion and faith and family. That That's kind of who I am in in a nutshell. Uh, but history is history is my passion. Yeah. Uh, and it helps me not get as upset as I could be. Explain that. Uh, well, I think the other day you posted on, on, on your Facebook, you said to study history is yeah. to be in a constant state of rage. Revelation. Uh, revelation and or, yeah, rage. And rage. <laughs> Um, I cannot remember who said it, uh, but they said to be black is to be in a constant state of rage. Mm. Um, I, I think for me, history tempers things for me. Meaning if someone ever says this is the blank things have ever been the best the worst, right. most divided. Right. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> this is the worst recession since the Great Depression. No, it isn't. You remember the recession of the 80s? You remember that? No? No? Well, let me tell you about it, right? Right. Oh, oh this is the most divided America has ever been. Do you know that there were fist fights at the Constitutional Convention? Right. Fist fights, right? <laughs> like, these are things. Most divided? We literally had a war, a civil war. That seemed pretty divided. <laughs> Right. Oh, this is the worst a president has ever been treated. Kennedy oh was shot gosh. in the head. Yes. Kennedy was shot in the head, Trump. Okay? He took a bullet in the head. Right? So like, the, so if anybody ever tells me that, that something's the worst or the best that it's ever been. Hyperbole. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it tempers my responses mm-hmm. to things. That doesn't mean that I don't get upset at things because I'm still a real person in real space in real time. This is my time. Right? Mm-hmm. And as a historian, I can say, haven't we learned our lesson yet on what fascism looks like? Does, does anybody remember? No, you, you, you know the word fascism, but you also told me that history is boring. So let me fill you in on what fascism is, right? right? This is what it looks like, right? So I, I think that it does temper my responses to things. Mm-hmm. Um, it does make me less angry, but no less aware of what's going on and responses that have worked in the past, what may no longer work in the future because times are changing, technology is changing, yeah. uh, the way people think through things are changing. Um, but you know, all that to say, it kind of leads me into why I came on to talk today uh, was the idea, <laughs> the idea of stereotypes mm-hmm. is kind of interesting. I think that those are things that no matter what, uh, stay with us. Right. Stay with us. When I was in college, my, uh, my final project in college, we – 
every every senior in, in undergrad had to do a paper presentation, depending on what your degree was, right? And uh, mine was in history. And again, my background is African-American history. I did a paper called Why Slavery is Right on Pro-Slavery Arguments in the Antebellum South. Mm. And what I wanted to look at was, okay, you know, History has spoken. You know, we understand that slavery is bad. You know, slavery bad, freedom good. You know, like, <laughs> like this is how that works, right? Uh, but there was a point in time where people did not believe that, right? Right, and enough people did not believe it to the point that they enslaved an entire group of people. Then you have your abolitionists that come along, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Frederick Douglass, John Brown, Harriet Tubman. You know, the, you have your abolitionists who come out and they're speaking out against slavery, mm-hmm. and we all agree. Right. That pretty much everything that they said is spot on. You don't even have to know what they said. But if they were like, hey, slavery is a bad thing. Right. Yeah, that seems right. I'm on that side. But they were constantly responding to things that pro-slavery advocates were saying. You could look at uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Obviously, this is well after slavery was over. But a lot of people don't know that Martin Luther King Jr., his speeches were constantly responding to Malcolm X. And Malcolm X's speeches were responding to to Martin Luther King. Uh, There was a playwright by the name of uh, Jeffrey Stetson who wrote a play called The Meeting. And it's a fictional account of a meeting that was actually supposed to take place between Martin Luther King and and, uh, and Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find uh, the PV, uh, PBS production of it on YouTube. Uh, you can also find the production where I was in it uh, uh, on YouTube as well. Where I played Malcolm and my friend played uh, Martin Luther King. And he put their speeches in conversation. Through that, you're able to see, whoa, they really were responding to each other. That's nuts. Yeah. Uh, but we assume, oh, I Have a Dream was a speech written in a vacuum. It wasn't. It wasn't just his point of view. It was him responding to what other people were saying. And so when you look back even further and you look at abolitionists, they were responding to things that other people were saying. What precipitated me wanting to study this was when I was in college, I was at a predominantly white college. And so I tended to, and as I revealed earlier on this, you know, I thought of myself as psychologically white for for a long time. Um, But at this point, I'm starting to understand my blackness quite a bit more. But I still understood the culture. Mm -hmm. I understood how to get in where I fit in. And so I was attracted to all types and but I was also attracted to white women and I was predominantly just attracted to who I was around. Right. And sure. there weren't a lot of black women to pick from and I wasn't gonna like go somewhere else to find a black woman. I was gonna be around uh, my college friends. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up dating young white women whose parents were not at all prepared for their daughter meeting a black guy. Because when they went to the school, there weren't any black people. Mm-hmm. So these are alumni, right? Mm-hmm. When I went to that school, there were no black people, <laughs> right? And so now my daughter is coming home, and she's she's uh, bringing me this uh, this black guy. I'll give you three three quick stories, uh, and then we'll get into what I wanted to talk about. But the first father that I met, my now ex wife, but I met him, and this prior to college, but I met him, and in his driveway, he told me in no uncertain terms, the Bible says that black people and white people aren't supposed to be together. And I was religious at that time, and I was like, ah, yeah, I've, I've read it. I'm pretty sure it does not say that at all. Mm-hmm. That was my first kind of brush w- with that, wow. uh, where I was dating someone seriously. And, and then I got into college and uh, met another young lady, and uh, her mother cried talking to me. She said, I don't understand why I feel the way that I do. I have black friends. Uh, and her dad said, point blank to me, he said, you know what? Uh, don't care how nice of a guy you are. Uh, don't care how much my daughter likes you. We just don't think black people and white people are supposed to be together. Okay, well, at least you didn't say God. Right. At least this time it's just your 
You're an asshole. You're an asshole, right? right? You're, you're, you're being super racist right now. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and then uh, we broke up. She graduated, and then there was another young lady who I met. And there were ladies between this, but we're talking about serious, uh, serious. Her father sat me down at the college campus and said, hey, you know what? I don't see anything in the Bible against black people and white people being together. And I was like, all right, awesome, great. We are on track, but... 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 I just don't see it as the ideal. Mm. And it's interesting. We're, we're on the college campus. We're sitting in this little rotunda area outside. It's like a, a circle of flags. So there's a college flag and there's, a, there's the American flag and there's the Christian flag. And here is a father telling me, I don't think it is the ideal for black people and white people to be together. I'm like, wow. <laughs> wow. Like three. You, could, you couldn't even said this somewhere else. Uh, but that informed me. I, I wanted to know where that thinking comes mm. from right mm-hmm. and and those were those were three specific episodes in terms of dating but there were a ton of other ideas on the campus the first thing somebody said to me when i got to the college campus i'm, I'm six foot one i'm kind of lanky and somebody said oh welcome to rochester college you, you must be here to play on the basketball team and they were trying to pay me a compliment and he's like oh you know the, the basketball team's so great you're gonna love it they're a great team i said actually no i'm here on an academic scholarship i'm probably smarter than you <laughs> and, and then i walked away and it was not a good first interaction but you know the first thing they said to me they're trying to compliment me right it's like saying you're a credit to your race like i tr- i get what you're trying to do right but you're still buying into an idea so you, you i take you back to the idea of hey calvin you're the whitest black guy i've ever met mm. right uh, i'm sure the other guests that you've had on your show have have been told that mm-hmm. right or you're so well spoken um you're a credit to your race I, I don't get that as much anymore but calvin you're the whitest black guy i've ever met oh <laughs> i'm just kidding and i choose my battles where i've i've said okay so what you're saying betrays the idea that you think a certain way about black people and that because of my pedigree because of my intelligence because of the degree that i've worked towards and attained i have now somehow transcended my race and become the exception to the rule. Now, the interesting thing about that is it comes from an old belief that if you were good enough, if you were a black person and you were good enough and you played your cards right and you listened to white people and you did all the correct things, that your skin color would change and you would become white. Wow. So that's a very, very old idea. So again, this is when, when I was dealing with those dads and I'm dealing with those comments, the historian in me kicked in. I'm like, you didn't wake up with that brilliant racist statement that you made, right? Right. Mm-hmm. You didn't just make that up, mm-hmm. right? That 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 didn't come out of committee this past weekend, right? That's been around for a long time. Why do you believe that? Who handed that to you? Why do you think I'm a credit to my race? Where does that come from? How did that become a compliment? You know, why why do you think I'm a white person when I act a certain way, right? right? That makes you comfortable. Where does that idea come from? There were explicitly stated ideas that have led to every asinine statement that has been made to me. There are explicit Mm. statements made that led to certain stereotypes. So the idea of stereotypes is interesting because here's why I do not like stereotypes. Mm -hmm. Positive stereotype. All Asian people are good at math. That is a positive stereotype. It is complementary to their math skills. Now, if you look at Test scores across the board. Asian people are better at math than any other group on the face of the planet. It is true. Okay? Fine. But all Asians are good at math is patently not true. There's right. got to be a few of them <laughs> right. who, who wear the dunce cap, right? Um, black people are great dancers. Mm-hmm. Black guys have big penises. 
mm-hmm. right? Mexicans. Mexicans are hard workers. Right. They're just they're just hardworking people, right? So you you have these these stereotypes that are positive. Oh, wow, mm-hmm. you know, Mexican people are they are hard workers, right? <laughs> I've seen Mexican people do backbreaking work that nobody else will do in this country, right? Mm-hmm. So the stereotype comes from somewhere. There's got to be a lazy Mexican person out there. There has to be, right? right. Um, but the stereotype comes from somewhere. Uh, by and large, black physiology tends to be bigger than white physiology. My friend um, <laughs> my friend Craig called me, uh, and he's a pastor, but and he knew that he could say this to me, but he called me one day and he said, I hate black people at the gym. And I was like, go on. <laughs> I'm gonna let you finish. He goes it's like, I work my ass off. I work my ass off and see no results. A black guy comes in, hasn't been there for ten months, picks up one barbell, and I see his muscle grow three times in size. What is that? Like that's genetic memory. That's literally what that's called. But uh, I get it, right? You know. But that's where the idea of like big black penises and things come mm-hmm. from, and you know, strong black men. Those are all positive stereotypes, though, and we want to believe them because they're complementary. Mm. The problem is the moment that you accept positive stereotypes, it means then that you are opening yourself to the acceptance of negative stereotypes, mm-hmm. right? By practicing accepting stereotypes at all, any right. kind, you're you're opening yourself to to the negative stereotypes. So, oh, you know what? Black people, they're just so big and strong and athletic and sexual. Oh, they're so great. They're also criminal. The the magical unicorn. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you're a magic negro, right? Right. Um. So, but they're they're also criminal, right? And and you should be afraid of them. And they're mm-hmm. lazy, mm-hmm. right? Oh, you know, Mexicans. All right. Wow. Yeah, they're such hard workers stealing jobs from Americans. Mm-hmm. Right. Illegal. You know, hopping the wall. Asian people. Man, they are so good at math, but they cannot drive, especially if they're women. Mm. Right. And I didn't even know I didn't even know that stereotype existed. That one until I watched the movie Crash. I had no idea about the the stereotype about Asian women not being able to drive. Yeah. I had no idea. So you have this practice of accepting positive. And so then that allows people to give negative stereotypes and then get out of it when you when you push back. Like, seriously, you think you you think that all Asian people are good at uh, math? You know what I mean, Calvin. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, come on, I'm not trying. I'm not trying to be racist. You know what? I mean. Yeah, you know what I mean. Right. right? And so all of this comes from somewhere. So I, I want to read a few things, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. So back to to that that paper that I wrote. I'm actually just kind of reading from it. So there were some of the reasons that were given for the continued institution of slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh. I'm going to look first at moral arguments yeah. for this. So slavery is moral. Today we look at slavery as clearly morally bankrupt. But back then they thought it was moral. So case in point, Jefferson Davis, who would become the president of the Confederacy, uh, the nation in rebellion against the United States. So if yeah. you were waving that flag, the rebel flag, it was in rebellion against the United States. Uh, you're anti-American. Treasonous. And yes, yes. Uh, but Jefferson Davis said this quote, uh, and I, I got some big block quotes here, uh, quote, Negro slavery exists in the South, and by the existence of Negro slavery, the white man is raised to the dignity of a free man and an equal. Nowhere else will you find every white man superior to menial service. Nowhere else will you find every white man recognized so far as an equal as never to be excluded from any man's house or any man's table. Your own menial who blacks your boots, drives your carriage, wears your livery, and is your own in every sense of the word is not your equal. And such is a society wherever Negro slavery is not the substratum on which the white race is elevated to its true dignity, unquote, right? So so Jefferson Davis believed that slavery, this is, this is going back to the conversation we had before about white supremacy. Right. It's literally right there. The white race is elevated to its true dignity on the backs of black people. It is a moral thing because white people need to be at the top mm-hmm. and black people need to be under us as a moral category. 
It's, it's, he morally categorized this, wow. which is just – and this is said, again, in the Senate chamber. I mean, Barack Obama, who later became president of the United States, was in the same Senate chamber, yeah. right? Passing resolutions when he was a senator, right? That's kind of nuts to think that those kind of things were said. Also, they pitted themselves against the northern wage labor system. They said that that's morally reprehensible. It's like, hey, yeah, you're paying people, but their their situation their situations are shitty. Mm-hmm. Quote here, uh, could the senator have failed to know that no master could take the life of or maim his slave without being held responsible under the criminal laws of any southern state and held to a responsibility as rigid as though that Negro had been a white man? So he's saying, hey, look, the laws say that we can't beat up our slaves and just kill our slaves without there being some consequence. Fact of the matter is, none of those laws were enforced, but right. they were on the books. So that's what he's alluding to. Uh, how then is it asserted that these are not persons in the eye of the law, not protected by laws as persons? In their subject and dependent state, they are not the objects of cruelty as they would be if left to the commission of crime. So he's saying, hey, up there in the north, your people are free. You're paying them shit. And because they're free, they turn to crime, but we keep them enslaved. We don't beat them up. We keep them enslaved and it keeps them from being criminal, Mm. right? Which leads to the belief in Negro immorality. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, There's a guy by the name of Jupiter Hammond. Uh, He was a reform minister. Mm -hmm. He is an abolitionist. In a keynote speech, uh, a sermon uh, written called Address to the Negroes in the State of New York, he wrote, One great reason that is given for some for not freeing us, I understand, is that we should not know how to take care of ourselves and should take to bad courses that we should be lazy and idle and get drunk and steal. Now, all those of you who follow any bad courses and do not try to do more to prevent our being free than anyone else, let me beg of you then, for the sake of your own good and happiness in time and for eternity, and for the sake of our poor brethren who are still in bondage, to, quote, lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, First Timothy 2, 2, unquote. So the argument is being made, hey, if we let them go, they're going to be given to crime, which has led to this minister saying, hey, they're saying we're going to commit crimes. So for the love of God, please do not commit crimes. Mm. Commit yourself to quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty so that they can't keep using that argument against us. Now, Jupiter Hammond's not saying that it's true. This idea that black people are are immoral. This is the beginning of the ideas of black criminality. Mm-hmm. And then you have that idea. So when we are finally freed, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, uh, you had the overseers in the field, which is the direct, there's a direct line from the overseers in the field to the modern police force. Yeah. That's who they became, right? Uh, the overseers and the, the bounty hunters became the police of today, mm-hmm. right? And from then, when you had the idea of black immorality, which turned into the idea of black criminality, which found new voice in uh, Jim Crow laws. Mm-hmm. So Recon- Reconstruction, Jim Crow laws, the readmittance of the Southern senators uh, being put back into the Senate and basically making laws that uh, kept black people from being able to do anything. Amazing. Uh, took away their 40 acres and a mule, took right. away their right to vote, all these different things. Then you have uh, the war on poverty. The war on crime and the war on drugs, uh, which has been admitted uh, that it was used to keep black people in place because of this idea of black criminality. So this is a long standing idea that black people are immoral and they need white people to keep them moral. Now, the whole we need white people to keep them moral is no longer uh, in vogue to say that. Right. It's no longer an idea that's on the surface, but it's definitely codified within the system. Right. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of the moral arguments that were made, which right. has led to this idea of black criminality today. Right. There's a reason why uh, there, there's a great comedian I heard years ago who said, hey, you know, I was walking 
walking, I was walking through this, uh, this parking lot and I saw these two scuzzy looking white guys in front of me. And I was a upstanding black citizen wearing a three piece suit. And there was this woman walking the other direction and she walked past the scuzzy looking white guys and she was totally fine. And then she walked past me, an upstanding black citizen wearing a three piece suit and she pulled her purse closer to her. And so I couldn't let that go. So I walked over to her and I said, excuse me, ma'am, excuse me. I, I just noticed that when you walk past those scuzzy looking white guys, um, you were totally fine. But then when you walk past me, an upstanding black citizen wearing a three piece suit, uh, you felt the need to pull your purse closer to you. Now, what if I was to take your purse? <laughs> Which it's, it's a great punchline, but it's a hilarious punchline. But uh, she pulled the, the idea was she pulled her purse closer to her because she saw someone who was black mm-hmm. and, and saw a criminal. Right. It just happened to be the joke. The punchline was he was a criminal. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny. Uh, don't commit crimes, people. But um, but then it, it kind of leads into I, I looked at uh, folklore and religious arguments. You may mm-hmm. have heard of some of these. Uh, have you heard of the Hamatic curse? Yes. OK. So uh, for those of you who have not heard of this, uh, the curse of Ham comes from uh, Noah. So Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem and Jepheth. If you look at their names in Hebrew, their names mean different color skins. There's light, there's olive and then there's dark. Ham was the dark brother. Uh, it is said that uh, after the flood, uh, all the waters receded and Noah has planted a vineyard. He gets drunk off of the wine from the vineyard and uh, it is said that Ham uncovers his nakedness. And now there's some disagreement as to what that means. It could mean that he saw his father naked and uh, that's where that ends. Uh, also uncovered his father's nakedness could be an allusion to uh, homosexual rape, mm-hmm. right? And uh, either way you go, Noah curses his son for uncovering his nakedness. Uh, and he says that your sons will be enslaved to the descendants of your brother's sons. And so because Ham was the black one, Mm-hmm. It was said that, well, black people are the descendants of Ham. Mm-hmm. And therefore, because of this Hamitic curse, black people are thus biblically cursed to slavery. Yeah. So that was, that was how people made a biblical argument or a religious argument for slavery, at least within Christianity. I don't right. know how it was done in, in Islam because they had slaves as well. I don't know how it was done in other uh, religions. Uh, but within the Christian religion in the United States, the Hamitic curse was looked at as a reason for enslaving black people. Well, and I'll tell you something. I didn't grow up within a religious home. Mm-hmm. And I, for people who are listening and thinking like, that's crazy, nobody thinks that. I actually had somebody pull that out as an argument with me about three months ago. Really? And I was gobsmacked. I was just like, what the hell? Yeah. It was unbelievable. It's it, And it's still around to this day. Like a 45, 50-year-old man. Mm-hmm. Like, Yeah. Bible verses, quoting all this stuff. He knew his Bible. People pull that stuff out all the time. I heard that as a kid, and I was like, well, shit. Well, that sucks. Uh, There was also the idea that the Negro has no soul, Mm. right? There was also an idea of uh, polygenesis, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, So Bible says uh, slave traders go to hell. It says this. Mm -hmm. Uh, So to get around that, slave traders tended to believe in something called polygenesis. Polygenesis was uh, the belief that different gods created black people and white people. So the Bible, the God of the Bible created white people. And then another God created black people without souls, just like animals, and therefore were able to be traded like animals, Mm -hmm. like cattle, right? And so, I mean, you you had that idea. And then you've got, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the movie Amistad. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Amistad, they, they... Take the ship. They kill. They kill everybody. Uh, they go before. Uh, I think John Quincy Adams is president at the time when this happened, and the guy who led that was like, you know, why do you, 
why do you say we have no soul? Why we feel bad when we take life if we have no soul, Mm -hmm. right? This is when they were on trial, right? Which was just kind of interesting. But they have no soul, but they also argued that slavery provides for the Christianizing of the Negro. Mm. So just in case, just in case they do have a soul, just in case we're wrong about this whole polygenesis thing, because there's some interpretations that are different than ours, let's take them to church with us. And we'll we'll leave out all the verses about slavery. We won't let black people read, because if they read it, then they'll realize what it says. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have that going on. And then when slavery ends, black people are ousted from white churches, which is where you get the African Methodist Episcopalian Church mm-hmm. was created when black people were ousted from white churches at the end of slavery. Just kind of interesting. So again, we're still being affected by the past today. This entire denomination exists because slavery ended and white people wanted nothing to do with black people in their congregations. When yeah. you owned us, you could have us up in the balcony. But when you didn't own us, you didn't even want us in the building. Another one, another one that I found interesting. You ever watch Bugs Bunny cartoons? Mm-hmm. So this is kind of – Bugs Bunny was always a little subversive. Yeah. Right. So uh, – you couldn't say words like moron on television. Mm-hmm. So Bugs Bunny would always say, oh, what a maroon. What a maroon. <laughs> if they were getting away with it in children's mm-hmm. uh, cartoons. Uh, same way you can go watch a Disney cartoon or a Shrek movie and there's all sorts of adult humor to keep us entertained. Right? Right. Same thing. Well, one thing that was interesting was American folklore. Uh, we know the story of the stork. Right. The stork brings babies. Right? Mm-hmm. You know. Dads who don't want to have that conversation with kids, moms who don't want to have that where do babies come from? Oh, the stork brought you, right? Or I bought uh-huh. you at a factory in Boston. Um, but the stork is an age-old image. Well, that comes from folklore. But if you, if you watch Bugs Bunny, it's they're bringing all the babies. you got the little white babies. you got the little Chinese babies. you got the little black babies. Here's the interesting thing. That was subversive, and people got upset about that. Wow. Because the folklore was that the stork brought white babies and children of color, black babies, hatched from buzzard eggs. So then you see this early anti-racism animation, huh. right? So this is, who was it? Mel Blanc? Was he the one who did Bugs Bunny? Yeah, Mel yeah. Blanc. Mel Blanc's doing this and he's subversively being anti-racist. Wow. Yeah, and I'm sure he had his, his areas where he might have been. Sure. But in the cartoon, he was presenting, no, the stork brings all babies, mm-hmm. right? And people were livid about mm-hmm. this. But that's folklore that we had about this as well. And then you get into economic reasons that they didn't want to have slavery and whatnot. Uh, and I don't want to get into all that. But yeah, bottom line, money. Money yeah. does talk. But all of this is part and parcel to ideas that stick with us to this day. Yeah. You know, black, you know, criminality, black people not having souls uh, or being soulless animals. This is where you get words like thugs, animals. Mm-hmm. Those kind of ideas stick with us because of these ideas from from the past. And because people aren't going on the Senate floor and saying this, people like to pretend, "Oh, well, that's not that's not happening anymore." But the ideas that people hold today are shaped by these ideas from the past to the point that we use the same words without even realizing. And so that's why I kind of wanted to talk about stereotypes and where some of them come from so people can be aware when they hear things, oh, that is, that's dog whistle language. Right. Uh, That's coded language even if they don't understand. A lot of black people use coded language. We can code switch. We can go into, Mm -hmm. you know, a white space and white it up. You know, we, we'll, right. we'll use the, the right words in the right context, and then we can get home among our friends and we can use the right language as well. Mm-hmm. What a lot of people don't understand as, is that there is coded language uh, within white culture as well. That is such a great point. And, however, though, I, w- I will sometimes give the benefit of the doubt here. I might be giving too much for, for some of my friends, but some of that coded language uh, is, again, unconscious. 
Yeah. Right. There are people who are, there are plenty of people who are conscious and we need to call them to the mat. Yes. But there are a lot of people who are unconscious. And in those places, in those spaces, I like to pick my battles. Like I said earlier, hey, so what you're saying is I have transcended my race by attaining what I've attained. And Mm -hmm. I have to pick, I have to pick those battles. There are some people where I'm like, I'll just have to say, thank you. That person means well and walk away. I don't have a vested interest in that person's life. I'm not going to use this moment to educate them. Right. But there are other people where I have to say, all right, Tim, let's slow down. Let's, let's, let's talk about this. We've been friends for 10 years. Mm -hmm. You said this. I know your heart. I know, I know your background, but let let me say that this just happened. Oh my God. I just did that. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Okay. Cool. Mm -hmm. We're good. Right. There are other people who are harder cells, some of my friends who are harder cells. Sure. But yeah, I, I think it's important to to point this out so that people can be aware uh, and, and yeah. open to to listen and start to have conversations. Like you said, you know, how can I be an ally? Right. Start to start to have conversations around those things when you hear people say things that they think might be safe. Right. It's just us. Or they say something and they are unconscious. They they totally don't know. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they make a, a joke or a stereotype. If it's a person that you have a vested interest in uh, and that you have the relational capital with, Take the time to to use that relational capital and say, "Hey, let's let's take a moment to pause and uh, and educate ourselves right. at, at why this is not cool, Chad." <laughs> right. Well, and and I so I've had a number of conversations one on one with some people, and they have lasted in excess of three and four hours, just kind of talking them through concepts like white fragility, white privilege, stuff like this, racism. And I didn't understand racism existed outside of what I trusted my friends of color to be telling me until I sat in a room with all white people and I said, oh my gosh, you guys, I'm so excited. I'm hosting this dinner party. Well, what's your dinner party about? It's about anti-racism work. And it was in that moment that I encountered racism in a sense, right? Right. Like I saw it, it just blossomed and people started saying all of this stuff. And I was like, oh my gosh, people really believe this. And, And I think it's interesting to understand too the history of eugenics and the role that that plays. I have people who still tell me today that they believe that black people are physiologically superior and stronger and that that is a biological fact. And they have no like these these are fairly educated human beings. And I'm just sitting there going, OK, this is amazing. That's why they wanted to take us in that movie. Uh, what was the movie? The Jordan Peele movie, not us. The, right. The, the, the one before Get Out, right? Get Out, right. Th- that's at the very basis yeah. of, of that film, which is kind of interesting. I'll tell people, you know, let, let's let's meet for coffee. Let's let's meet for coffee. Why? We're doing fine online. Well, no, uh, we're we're doing OK. Um, I love online. that. Yeah. Um, but I like to see people's commitment level to this. Yeah. Are, are you willing to sit down and have this conversation over coffee and look me good. look me in the face and and say some mm-hmm. of the things that you're saying? Like, because if you're willing to do that work, if you're willing to at the very least meet me, mm-hmm. okay, I can see there is there's some honesty there. I like I know nothing about transgender, mm-hmm. nothing. It, it's a little odd to me, a little strange to me, but it's because I lack the information. Mm-hmm. Right. And there was a there was a guy on our show not too long ago. And uh, we were, I can't remember what we were talking. I think we were talking about rape culture. And he came in and he was great. He was fantastic. And then I had posted something on Facebook asking some questions and he chimed in and lo and behold, talked to him. And he says, I was born a girl. Mm-hmm. I went through gender reassignment surgery, all this different stuff. And if you have questions, let's get together. Now, our schedules have not aligned. We've been trying to get together for like the last month. It's like something comes up like on Thursday night, like, hey, my kid's doing this. I can't come. So, but we have it so that we're set hopefully next week to get together because I have a lot of questions just because I don't know. And if someone will, I think this is key to the conversations that you're trying to have. Mm -hmm. And it needs to happen on both sides. Mm -hmm. 
uh, not just a person who – well, because both sides come and think that they're right generally speaking. But I think that both people or all sides, however many people are in the conversation, need to adopt a posture of humility. Like I could be wrong. I could be wrong because if you saunter into the room – we did a podcast the day after Hillary lost the election to Trump. And you could, everybody in the room was hurting. Everybody in the room was hurting. You could tell that they were all Hillary voters. And then one vote, one guy walked in with a Hillary for prison 2016 shirt. And he strutted and he preened and he sat at that end of the table right there and pissed everybody off, right? If, if you walk in like that to a conversation, that's a problem. But if everybody walks in going, I don't know everything. Mm-hmm. Like when I got my degree, it had this big circle saying, hey, here's all the knowledge in the world. And then there was like a little tiny bump in the circle saying, this is what you know. Mm-hmm. This is what you know, right? So if you can adopt the posture of, I might not be right. There's some gaps in my information. I have feelings about what I do know, and that's okay. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm open to correction. I'm open to new information. And if the new information challenges what I know in a... In a big enough way, I can adjust. Mm-hmm. I think it's okay for people to go, all right, I've considered it. I still feel the way that I do and reject. That's fine. You can do that. But at least consider the information. Yeah. Right? Um, you can consider the information and still be wrong. That's. I think that's key to anything that anybody working in anti-racism, activism, need to need to understand. You're going to, you're going to need to be able to ascertain that very quickly. Mm-hmm. Whether someone is honest about wanting to know mm-hmm. and be open, it doesn't mean coming to the conclusions that you have. Sure. But are they asking open and honest questions? Are they willing to have their worldview challenged? Or are they coming to pre and imposter? Yeah. Those are all really good questions. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, for me, it's like I listen to some of the things you've said, and I can think back to a time 20 years ago, 15 years ago, where those were thoughts that I held or had and ideas that I had because I didn't know any different, you know, and to look back on that and to think about it. And yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. We're way over on time. No, we're fine. No? I mean, just, okay. we're, we're good on time. I didn't know. <laughs> I'm like, I could just... Keep on talking. You are amazing, though. Seriously. I try. Like, your wealth of information. I'm a good dancer. This is amazing. <laughs> are you a good dancer? I, I don't know. I don't make that assumption. I think I'm a mediocre dancer. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that has nothing to do with what we talked about. So but. then for people who are listening and who are really drawn in and fascinated <laughs> by these stories of history and lore and and want to gain a better understanding, even more of an understanding, what would you recommend in terms of books to read or places to, to kind of go to the next yeah. level? Um, I mean, depending on which side of the conversation you're, you're on, uh, I mean, I'll bring, I'll bring up a few, but obviously Stamp from the Beginning by uh, Ibram Kendi mm-hmm. uh, is, is a really good one. If you're, if you're big into numbers, I mean, this is from a Christian author, but America at the Crossroads by George Barna. I love mm-hmm. the research that they do. Uh, Barna and uh, Pew Research Journal do a lot of great works. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates is always great uh, between the world and me. Um, White Rage. White Rage is a really good one as well, uh, which is on my uh, on my bookshelf. So I can't tell you. I want to say White Rage is by Carol Anderson. She also wrote a book called One Person No Vote, uh, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. Mm. So that's another issue. Yeah. Uh, talking about voter suppression. Yeah. Uh, so black people have the right to vote. Uh, but voter suppression is still a very, very big issue at the polls. Every, I'll tell you, every time I go to the polls, I haven't had, I have not had an issue. Mm-hmm. I have not had an issue. But I think I also carry myself in such a way that I'm not going to. Mm-hmm. 
But there are people outside of my voting, my polling station, where I'm like, I feel like I know what they're doing. Yeah. I feel like what I know what they're yeah. doing standing out there. Uh, a book uh, called White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, mm-hmm. uh, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think is really good. Uh, we Were Eight Years in Power, also by ta Coates. Michael Eric Dyson wrote a book called What Truth Sounds Like. Uh, <laughs> here's another one. I love one. him. Uh, th- this one I have not read yet, but I'm still going to recommend it. It's Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Yes, that's on um, my list. It, it is a, it's on my list. It's the next one on my list to read. I'm just saying it as a title uh, that I have. But I think a good primer, uh, a good primer, uh, you can look this up on uh, at any bookstore, uh, So You Want to Talk About Race. I think that that is a very good place to start. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, uh, one, one last one. This one is decidedly Christian, and it's someone I think you should have on the show if you possibly can. Mm-hmm. She's in Grand Rapids. Oh, um, Austin Channing Brown? Austin Channing Brown. She's like my dream. I'm still here, Black Dignity yes. in a World Made for Whiteness. I yes. stayed up one night, could not put the book down. Yes. Absolutely fantastic. Now that's that's talking have you read the book? Oh yeah. Okay, so she's And talking I'm an about, Uber fan girl. Okay. So yeah. she's she's a black woman talking about moving not just through uh black spaces, but through white evangelical yes. spaces. Now I can tell you that will be another episode I would love to talk about. Yes, please. Um that's probably one of the main reasons I am no longer religious yeah. was being a black person moving through white evangelical spaces. Yep. Um so and I know that most white evangelicals would say, well then you weren't really Christian if you let, you know, s- you know, Christian oh, you know another Christian hurt you, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Right, whatever. I get it. But her, her book was absolutely... Are you familiar with Life-giving. Jamar Tisby's The Color of Compromise? I am not. Oh, I think okay, that's going to be one to add to your here list. We here we go. Here yep. we go. It just came out. He's doing the circuits. He is part of BCC, which is the Black Christian Collective and The Witness. Okay. And he does the podcast Pass the Mic. Okay. And he put out Color of Compromise. So that's actually on our list as well. Okay. Um, but he talks about American Christianity's complicity in racism, which I am here for 100%. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm excited about that. But any of those books you want to read and even talk about, I'm, yeah. I'm game for that. But, but yeah. Solid resources I think would be great. Um, awesome. But yeah, I mean, and, and if you want to follow me at all, uh, you can. Yeah. Uh, Where do we find you? You can find my podcast. Uh, it's called Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. The website is leadingquestionsnow.com or leadingquestionsnow.com. <laughs> my friends make fun of me for that one. I was like, I, I tried. I wanted leading questions, uh, but it didn't work out. So leadingquestionsnow.com. Uh, we are currently in our fifth season of producing shows. Uh, lots of great uh, commentary, lots of great people. And I try to get experts on, not just people who have opinions about things, right. people who have studied things, people who work in different backgrounds. Uh, like we did an episode on immigration. It was great. I had a woman who was uh, working in southwest Detroit, uh, which is known as Mexican town, with undocumented workers uh, sitting next to uh, a guy who was the vice president of the third largest refugee resettlement organization in the United States wow. sitting across from a guy who ran a Catholic apostolate who had paid lots of money for people to work for his company from foreign countries, mm-hmm. filled out all the paperwork and got rejected, didn't get their money back and was like, well, people shouldn't just sneak in then. We're not going to turn them around and sneak in. Uh, so he was for the wall and for the Muslim ban and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, do it the right way or don't come in at all. And then I, there was a woman on the Skype line who she was married. She married someone who, when he came in, was uh, she calls him an illegal. Um, they went through the process, got him legal, and 
she was not for the wall but was for the Muslim ban because she's evangelical Christian. So it was really interesting to have the conversation and see where the lines are drawn all crooked in the in the sand and things like that. But that's kind of a microcosm yeah. of what our show kind of hits on. We hit on all sorts of different topics, but we have people from different walks of life who can disagree well to show that civil discourse is not dead. Right. It just takes work and a lot of people are lazy. Right. I'm not saying black people are lazy, okay? That's not what I'm saying, <laughs> right? People want to hear that. Um, but, you know, people don't want to do the work that it takes to have real, open, honest conversations like you and I have had today. Mm-hmm. So even though I talked a lot. But anyway, that's okay. all I have to say. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. <laughs>